Welcome to Ebenezer's Podcast, a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's Lead Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. Good morning, and thank you for choosing to spend time with our Ebenezer family for worship this morning. If you're newer to Ebenezer, we would love to know who you are and to connect with you. So if you're joining us online, would you please just text the word church to our phone number 306-249-0084? Well, there are a few things to be aware of for the next couple of weeks. First of all, this coming Wednesday at 7 p.m., we are having our annual congregational meeting, which will include uh, approval for our 2022-23 budget, as well as an important update from our succession planning team. Attending in person is always an encouragement to us, but if you can't do that, please join us for live streaming online. The Zoom link can be found on our church website, ebenezerbaptist.ca. Uh, Also this week, our monthly family lunch will happen again this Thursday at 12 p.m. And this is open to anyone who is able to join us. Come for a great lunch and come and build community uh, with people in our church family, but also in our community. The cost is only $5 and you can sign up by following the link in our weekly email or by texting the word family to our phone number. Or if you want, just call the church office and Darla will be happy to sign you up. Finally, we will be having another worship and prayer night next Sunday evening at 6.30. Our God is worthy of honor and glory and blessing. And as the song says that we sang last week, it is good to remind ourselves of this. So plan to join us next Sunday at 6.30 for a time of praise and prayer. Great to be with you this morning. Thanks, Jeremy and the team for leading us in worship. Good to be here uh, in person. I'm Pastor Kelly, glad to be here to continue on in 2 Peter, and welcome to our online community who's joined us here today as well. When COVID hit near near two years ago, a lot of people were asking questions. Even some in my neighborhood were asking questions, like, isn't there something in the Bible about this? Doesn't the Bible talk about diseases wiping out millions of people before the world ends? That's the questions that were being asked. Now, just as it seems that the COVID front is quieting, Russia invades Ukraine. Our inflation rate is at an all-time high. Food and fuel costs are skyrocketing. And if you've been watching the news not that many weeks ago, there was even talk of a potential third world war if NATO chose to enter a conflict directly with Russia. (laughs) What is going on? What's happening in our world? There's uncertainty everywhere, everywhere we look. What does it all mean? Is the return of Christ more imminent than ever before? Several weeks ago, we began our sermon series on 2 Peter. Peter wrote this letter to address three very important issues that were surfacing within the churches at that time. First, there were numerous false teachers within the church spreading wrong doctrine. And Peter wrote to help the believers recognize these false teachers and then deal appropriately with those who were spreading incorrect teaching. Secondly, he wrote to correct the misinformation that had been spread by these false teachers. He corrected the fallacy that once you were saved, you could live however you wanted. He challenged the believers to be diligent in the pursuit of their spiritual maturity, to give 100% for Jesus because he gave 100% for us. And then thirdly, he also wrote 
to correct the misinformation that had been serving, uh, spread by these false teachers surrounding the second coming of Jesus. So what did Peter tell the believers who are wondering about the return of Christ, just as we are today? We find the answer in our passage this morning. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll start at verse 1. Um, if you've got your phone, pull that out if you'd like, or your Bible, it'll also be on the screen. Verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so the first thing that we see here this morning that Peter is telling the church is to remember God promised that Christ would return to judge the world. In the NIV, he uses the phrase, dear friends. Uh, I think in other translations we read, beloved. And it's actually interesting, this word is used four times in this chapter. In the previous chapter, Peter was given it to the false teachers. He's using really strong language to confront them. But in this chapter, he shifts from that confrontational side to reveal his pastor's heart. He cares about the believers. He loves them. He loves the Lord. He loves the church. And because of his love for them, he's instructing them then and guiding them through this time of uncertainty. He writes to stimulate them to wholesome thinking, to stir them up, actually, is what a more accurate translation would be. In Matthew 8, Jesus and the disciples were caught in a storm while on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was sleeping. So the disciples woke him up because they were afraid of drowning. This was a pretty terrifying time for them. And the phrase that Peter uses in our passage this morning is actually the same one used of the disciples who woke Jesus up. They stirred him up from his sleep. They stirred him up. That's the phrase that's there. And so Peter is stirring the believers up. He's calling them. Wake up, guys. Wake up. Wake up and remember what you already know. Wake up what you know from the Old Testament prophecies. Zechariah, Amos, Jeremiah, and Joel were filled with prophetic statements which said that Jesus would come to redeem the world and that he would come a second time to ultimately judge the earth. And so Peter is calling them to wake up and remember these things. And then he calls a, a second time and he says, wake up and remember what Jesus himself said regarding his return. Matthew 24, verse uh, 42. Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And so the words of Jesus called his followers to keep watch, to be on the alert, to stay awake. And there's that whole picture of waking up and staying awake again, to be vigilant regarding the imminent return of the Lord. And so this attitude of watchfulness, of staying awake, of being, of being ready was not intended to be just a one-time event. Yeah, we're going to stay alert for one night while we're, we're watching and keeping, keeping watch over the camp or the city or whatever it might be. This waking up for the return of Christ was to be a normal, regular aspect of life. It was a call to live with an ever-present watchfulness in anticipation of the return of Christ. And so what does this say to us today, for just a moment? What does this say? I think in a lot of ways that we become very comfortable, especially in our North American context. And Peter's challenge to wake up, I think, is as relevant for us today as it was to his readers nearly 2,000 years ago. It's a, it's a challenge to wake up from the culturally induced slumber that we're in. To wake up from the distorted thinking that we've succumbed to because of the influence of an, a non-believing culture that's all around us. We need to wake up. To wake up and remember that Jesus will come again. God promised that Christ would return and God's promises can be trusted. 
We need to remember that Christ will come again and live every day with the understanding and the expectation that he will return just as he said he would. Peter continues in verse 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And so the, the second thing that Peter tells his readers is that scoffers will come, so be prepared. Verse 3, you must understand, scoffers, they're going to come. And so Peter wanted his readers to know that being scoffed at and mocked for their faith in Christ is a reality for those who follow Jesus. He didn't want the church to be surprised or confused and even unarmed when Christ did not return as they expected and scoffers and mockers appeared. Now, what was the motivation of these scoffers? We actually see that in verse 3 as well. Scoffers come because of their own evil desires. Denying the return of Christ gave the scoffers freedom to continue to live as they were. They were living in sin. If there was no return of Christ, then there was no judgment. No judgment, no consequence, no consequence. You could do whatever you wanted. That was their motivation. Now, as we look into, into the scriptures, we find that there's actually confusion around the second coming of Christ in several different places in, in the New Testament. It's mentioned. The, new church was, the early church, rather, was struggling with this. Paul wrote this to the church in Thessalonica. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. That's what Paul wrote. He's correct in the heresy that Jesus had already returned and all the believers had missed it. Now, on the other side, on the other hand, Peter is addressing the lie that Christ was not going to come. And that's the lie of the scoffers that we find here in 2 Peter. Ever since their ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of the creation. And so the scoffers were saying that nothing has changed since creation, nothing has changed since the patriarchs, our ancestors died. And since nothing has changed, he's not coming back. They're saying God doesn't engage human history. God doesn't interact with human history. He's not connected. Yeah, he may have formed everything, but from that, he's just kind of taken a step back after that. And this sort of thinking, this line of thinking, reveals what was happening for these false teachers at this point in time. There's actually a name for it, for the philosophy that they were, that they were pushing forward, for the theology that they were pushing forward. And it's, it's deism. False teachers here were, were deists. That's what they were. Deists believe that God exists, that he created the world, but beyond that, they believe that he has no active engagement in the world or in human history. That's what they were thinking. They were saying that the Lord's not returned in such a long time. There's no indication that he will. He's not going to return. He's not involved in human history at all. That's what they were saying. Now, there's another important phrase in this passage that I think we need to consider, and that's the words, the last days. I think we need some clarity on this. We need to understand it. The last days is actually a reference to the entire time between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. The first coming of Christ is the beginning of the last days, and his second coming is the end. The early church lived in the early portion of the last days. And according to the biblical definition, we live in what may well be the latter portion of the last days. 
And so as we move through the last days, possibly to the return of Christ, we shouldn't be surprised if we find more and more apostasy within the professing church. I mean, the issues faced by the early church are going to be the issues that we are facing now. There's nothing new under the sun. We're going to face the same sorts of things, and we shouldn't be surprised. Now, there's a, there's a statement here that I want to make, and this is a pretty important concept, and so I'll just read it and just work to hang on to this. The pursuit of sinful living always distorts sound doctrine to justify the sinful lifestyle. That's what was going on at this point in time that, where Peter wrote. The pursuit of sinful living by these deists distorted sound doctrine to justify the sinful lifestyle. We talked about a couple of different things that are going on in, in our season as, as church at this point in time in the latter days as the Church of Christ. Wes mentioned a couple of them a few weeks ago. The health and wealth teaching, that's so prevalent, justifies the pursuit of wealth. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you're devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And then progressive Christianity that's out there now too. Uh, Wes mentioned that. Leighton's going to speak on that in a couple of weeks here and kind of unpack that one. That's really a big thing out there right now in our church, Big C, in terms of the latter days. That's what the broader church is facing. It's one of these issues. It's happening. It overemphasizes the grace of God among many things. I'm not going to unpack the whole thing here today. But it leads to, to a real liberal morality. And so what do we do when we see these sorts of things happening? What should our response as the church be? I think we need to hold true to the word of God in its fullness. I think that's very important at this point in time. We can't overemphasize or underemphasize one part of Scripture, one part of who God is, against another part of who He is. And that's some of what's, what's there in these false teachings that are happening to the, to the larger church at this point in time. In John 1.14, Jesus, we read this, Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. And so we have to work hard to maintain that, that balance between the grace of God which says that I am going to do absolutely everything possible to save you and reach out to you, and also the truth of who God is, and that's the justice of God, and the fact that he'll come to judge someday. We have to keep these things in balance. We can't overemphasize one part against the other. We can't lose one at the expense of the other. And I think at this point in time, as we see some of these things happening in the, in the church, again, large sea, not Ebenezer, but I'm talking the bigger church picture here, that we need to be encouraged because the fact that false teachers are present, the fact that, that scoffers are present, is actually an indication that the return of Christ is coming nearer and nearer and nearer. And so we who know Christ as Savior and Lord should be living in the hope and expectancy of his return. We shouldn't be surprised when mockers attack biblical truth, including the truth regarding his second coming. And just before we move on to the next verses, I think there's an important question that, that we need to ask ourselves this morning, and that's this. What biblical truth might we be looking over personally? Might we be overlooking or even ignoring in order to justify a lack of obedience on our part? Or perhaps even sinfulness on our part? I think it's a question that we need to consider personally. Peter continues in verse 5. But they, and he's talking about these false teachers now, these deists, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. 
By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so here's the third thing that I'd like to, to pull out here that I think Peter's saying. The third point, God has shown his power and his ability to bring judgment in the past. And so in these verses that I just read here, Peter gives a response to the claims of the false teachers regarding Jesus' second coming. As I read it, and maybe as you heard it here this morning, you're going, what is going on in those verses? What's happening? And when I first read it, I thought, the same thing. <laughs> What's going on here? And so I actually kind of pulled the threads of thought apart and followed them through and then wound them all back together, up to get together at the end. And that gave me a picture of what I think Peter was trying to say here. So I'll do that this morning, and, and hopefully that's helpful to us as well. So the first thing to notice is that Peter refutes the lie of the scoffers by citing God's activity in human history. Creation. He begins with that. Peter points out that the, the scoffers believe that God created the world. That's kind of that starting point of the deist. They go astray from there. He points out that they believe that, but they ignore the implications of him as the creator of everything. All through scripture, there's references to God as creator of everything. Everything, including us, including all people, including humanity, was created by God. And seeing that God is the creator of everything, he therefore has the right to do with his creation as he chooses. Including the right to act as the righteous judge of those who choose not to recognize him. So that's the first thing. This leads us to the second major activity of God in human history, and that's the flood. Verse 6. The waters destroyed the earth. Scoffers claimed that everything had continued unchanged since creation. But they had forgotten, perhaps even willingly, because then they could continue to live sinfully, they had forgotten that God had directly intervened in human history by a great catastrophe, a worldwide flood, which God used to bring judgment upon the wicked. And so Peter is refuting this whole thing that God is not involved in human history. Two global events. He has definitely been involved in, in human history. Uh, so they, he refutes that claim, and then he goes to take it a little bit further yet. Peter continues to point out the means by which God's power and authority enacted in that time. And that's by the power of his word. So in the creation account, we see one simple phrase used repeatedly to describe how everything came into being. God said. Two simple words. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1.3. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. Verse 9. Nine different instances in the first few chapters of Genesis where God spoke and something happened in, as a direct response to what it was that God had said. In the account of the flood, the same expressions found in Genesis 1, the account of creation, uh, God saw what was happening and God said, God spoke. These are repeated in Genesis 6, 1 through 8. And so the word of God, the utterances of God, the statements of God that created all of life in the creation account are now the utterances and statements of God, the words of God by which all of life is destroyed in the flood. Psalm 33, 9. He spoke and it came to be, commanded and it stood firm. So there is unimaginable power and authority in the words which God speaks. And we see that here in the accounts of creation and the accounts of the flood. And then in the last verse of this section, Peter ties all this together. And th this is essentially where it goes. 
We have the activity of God in history, creation and the flood. He's not been inactive, as you're saying. We have the source of power by which God's intervention occurred. That's the power of his spoken word. And the authority and power of that word by which God spoke and in these things occurred, that power remains unchanged. Therefore, he has the ability to intervene just as he has in the past. And he will, by that same power, return and judge the world with justice. The great theologian Charles Spurgeon put it this way. It was by the word of God that the heavens were made, by the word of God that the earth was drowned, by the word of God that it has been preserved ever since, and will be preserved until, by that same word, fire shall come to devour all the works of man. Scripture clearly speaks to the return of Christ. But the increasingly tolerant culture that we live in doesn't want to make any judgments. God will come and judge, but our culture doesn't. This has swayed many believers to minimize biblical truth regarding God's coming, regarding his, his judgment. Some deny the reality of hell. We see, a, we see that clearly spoken of in Scripture, and yet they deny it. Others believe that God will ultimately save everyone. We don't see that in Scripture either. We see the grace of God, and we see the truth. There's that balance. If we're followers of Jesus, the bottom line for us has to be what the Word of God says. And Scripture clearly says that God created the world by his word, that he judged the world at, at the flood by his word, and that he will come again to judge the ungodly by his word. We need to stand on the truth of what Scripture says, and we need to lovingly engage the people around us and lovingly share regarding the second coming of Christ and how we can be prepared for it. Perhaps we can actually use the uncertainty of our times to start spiritual conversations. And in that way, redeem this crazy season that we're all in going, what, what in the world is happening? Peter continues in verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And so here's the fourth thing I think that Peter is saying to, to his readers. The Lord is patiently waiting for sinners to come to him, but he will return. He will return, and he'll return to judge, judge the world. So after dealing with the faulty argument of the scoffers, he kind of gets hard on these guys again. He's hard on them. But then he becomes pastoral once again. And he offers truth to these listeners who may have been discouraged with the reality that Christ has not yet returned. From a human perspective, the scoffers are, are noting that a lot of time has passed from creation to their day and still the Lord's not returned. But the truth, as Peter points it out, is that God doesn't measure time according to human standards. A day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. Now, this description actually points us to the nature of God. God's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's past, present, and future. One day for him isn't even a dot on the line drawn to infinity in God's scheme of things. And so Peter's challenge to the believers is to, was to look at this, this delay in time from a, a divine perspective rather than a human one. From our human perspective, time is measured in minutes and days and weeks and months and years. We're mortal. 
And we approach time from a mortal perspective. But God is eternal, and he's unconstrained by time as we understand it. Psalm 90, possibly where Peter was drawing from when he wrote this section on, on God's timelessness, says this, You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. And so God has not forgotten his promised return, nor is he powerless to come and judge with justice. He's simply planning his return according to his divine perspective as it relates to time. And then Peter shifts a little bit. He's talking about the timelessness of God. And then he shifts his focus to talk about the tenderness of God. Verse 9, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is patient. The word literally means a long fuse. His patience is a result of his character. So the timelessness is a part of his nature. His tenderness is a part of his character. He's filled with compassion and love for those who don't know him. A couple of weeks ago, Chet preached, and he mentioned a passage from Luke 19 where Jesus approached Jerusalem and he wept over the city. It, it was a sob. It was a cry of agony for those who wouldn't respond to him, for those who, who refused to know him and a cry of agony, agony of what would happen eventually to the city of Jerusalem. Jesus agonizes over those who have rejected him. And, and this reveals the heart of God to us. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God's waiting is a result of his timelessness and his tenderness. The prophet Ezekiel wrote the words of God in chapter 18. Living Bible. I, I just like the way that it stated it. Do you think I like to see the wicked die? Asks the Lord. Of course not. I only want him to turn from his wicked ways and live. And so God's waiting is redemptive. It's a redemptive waiting, but he will come. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will come unexpectedly. If any of you have ever had your house broken into, you come home and find the place in a mess. You didn't expect that. That's the coming of the day of the Lord. And then verse 7, I want to take us back to that. The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. How many of you have ever made a dinner reservation? I'm sure we'd all put our hands up for the most part. For a birthday or a special anniversary or maybe a retirement party, no hints. But <clears throat> to make a reservation means we book a place and a date and a time. You put it in your calendar. You write it on the, on the calendar on the wall in pen because you know it's not going to be changed, right? We have this thing about pen and pencil in the calendar at home at our place. And, but that's the picture that Peter uses here. God has made a reservation for the return of Christ. It's in his calendar, written in pen. He knows the day, the time, and the location, which is our, our world as we know it. He has made that reservation for the second coming of Christ and the judgment of creation. It's going to happen. The plan is laid out. And the Father's the only one who knows when it is. Mark 13, 32. No one, not even the angels in heaven, nor I myself, and this is Jesus speaking, knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Only the Father's know. Only the Father knows. Only God knows the exact moment. But Jesus will return, and when he does, the passage says that the heavens and the earth, as we, as we know them, will be burned up, and he will judge the ungodly with fire. Verse 7. The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The heavens will disappear with the roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. 
I shared a couple of times from up front here a little bit about the family business that we were a part of. My dad and my uncle owned it, bought it from my grandpa, and we got to be a part of it growing up. Um, a lot kind of just assume it's construction, I guess, in a way that it was, but it was a lot more heavy haul. How many of you have ever, ever seen the show on the Discovery Channel called Heavy Hauls? In the first service, there was a couple of people. Okay, you've seen it. We could have been on that show. Totally. That's really what it was about. So we'll put that picture up if you would. This is a picture of one job that we did like a long, long time ago a long time ago, like I was in high school when that was done. Um, there was, uh, a lot of you might just see the elevator, but notice like there's, there's a truck underneath it. <laughs> when we show these things, a lot of people, they miss the truck because the elevator's so big. Yeah, I've seen lots of elevators, what's the big deal? No, there's a truck under it. It's being driven across the prairies here. So there was a, a professional photographer out on this job just because it was something different and unique. Now that picture, that elevator is not the exact elevator, but the moving system that's underneath it is the exact unit. So my dad, who's here this morning, my Uncle Don, and the crew uh, had a, a large annex, a pool annex that was loaded uh, on that equipment, and they were hauling it up Highway 3 past Blaine Lake uh, to Highway 12. They had seven trucks on it hauling it up that road. There's a lot of hills there. And they parked it um, in the memorial, like right across from the entrance to Memorial Lake. You guys ever been there? A lot of you are nodding. Yeah, that service station right on the corner, that's where we parked. That service station was actually just being built there. And that night, two guys came from the Spiritwood Bar, had a little too much to drink. They bet one another, you could see the flames in Saskatoon. They dumped in 10 gallons of gas and threw a match in. You wanna just change the slide there? Two hours, everything was gone. See, this, in that season, <laughs> the, the elevator that they had loaded actually had asbestos siding on it. The idea was to keep it from burning if there was another one beside that it caught on fire. So this thing had asbestos siding on it, and the bin floors in the bottom that were flat, the agents didn't like that because they had to do lots of shoveling, they had been left at the old site, and the new site was going to have hoppered floors. So that thing actually... You could step under the edge of it and look right to the shingles. It was hollow inside, except for the, the bin spaces, and covered in asbestos. Fur lumber, old as can be, full of grain dust. <laughs> it was a big chimney. And it was gone. A couple hundred pounds of nails in our stuff. So the heat from that fire bent those massive beams like wet spaghetti. They were probably four or five tons each, maybe six tons. There was a four-foot bend in them. They just sunk to the ground. We hauled them home, and they were in the shop road, uh, shopyard for a while. We could jump our dirt bikes off the end because there was this beautiful curve, and they were wide enough. <laughs> but they just, they just sank. Seventy-some tires underneath that load at that point in time. Nothing but the wire from the tread was left. Everything was just totally gone. In the cab of the truck, completely gone. There was a little paint left on the doors, but aside from that, nothing was left. Inside, there was um, just a frame from the seat, and it was so hot, the glass in the gauges in the dash hung like icicles. It takes a lot of heat 
to, to melt glass like that. Thank God my uncle had the fortitude to build a new moving system that allowed them to handle stuff way bigger. Um, those beams that burnt there were like six ton, the new ones were like 10 tons each. So they hauled way bigger stuff after that. It was a bit of a watershed moment for their business. But here's my point. Fire is the ultimate test of purity. Fire tests strength. Fire tests how things have been built. It refines precious metals, and fire is the ultimate destroyer. Flood, it is not the same. Tornadoes, not the same. Earthquakes, not the same. Fire destroys absolutely everything. And Scripture tells us that God is coming to judge his creation. And everything that falls short of his divine standard of purity, which we only gain through Jesus Christ, will be destroyed by fire. Kind of scary. And so how do we respond in light of this? I think we respond in a manner that's in keeping with the character of God. As followers of Jesus, as disciples, the strategy, the desire of God is that we grow in our... It, we, our character develops to become more and more like Jesus. We know him better. We, we, we know the ways of Jesus. We follow in the steps of Jesus by becoming more and more like him. And so how do we respond? Well, it's in liking. It's, in, it, it's, it's parallel to the character of God. That's how we respond. So we respond in this time with patience. We recognize the timeless nature of God, and we patiently anticipate his, his return. And we're tender. We're tender towards those who do not know Jesus, and we recognize that God's giving opportunity for non-believers to respond to him. And we, re we understand that he wants us to be a part of that redemptive plan. And we keep the ultimate return of Christ in mind. Embracing the reality that Christ will come again gives urgency to our witness and focus on our lives. And so quick question for us here this morning. Who do you need to express the tenderness of God to? You know, that character trait of who he is. And how does the reality of Christ's return impact you in terms of coming alongside what, it is, you know, what he's doing in terms of his, his redeeming work in this season? Big questions. <clears throat> Peter continues in verse 11. All this talk of fire is making my throat dry. <clears throat> Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with the promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And so Peter's point here, as I see it, he calls us to live holy lives and look forward to his return. And he starts this section with a question. Since all this stuff is going to happen, what sort of people ought we be? Followers of Jesus, what should, we, what should we look like? And the answer is twofold. Followers of Jesus should live holy and godly lives. A holy, godly life distinguishes the follower of Christ from those who don't know Jesus. We look different than the people in our culture because we're striving to be godly and holy. Godliness is, is rooted in the concept of reverencing God and standing in awe of him. It's the attitude of giving God the place that he rightly deserves as Lord in every thought and in every action. To live a holy and godly life, again, it's not just a one-time thing. Oh, I'm going to be godly tonight. 
No, it's something that we're called to do all the time. I'm going to be holy in that restaurant, you know, when the waitress doesn't come on time. And No, we live, we live holy lives all the time. God calls us to be holy and godly. What Peter says in his first letter regarding it, uh, godliness, I think, describes it well. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The next part of this. Jesus' followers should anticipate the return of Christ. There was a time in my previous church where I had five funerals in six weeks. That was a long haul. And like you, on top of all the regular stuff that you're doing, it's always over and above like your kind of regular stuff when you're in ministry. That was a long season for me. There was literally a point when I was at, at the lunch of the previous funeral when the family was there and they were asking me if I would take the next service like a week later. And they were just overlapping like that. It took a ton of energy out of me. and I was really drained. And so dad calls me and says, I booked a spot, Canada Lake. We're going snowmobiling. <laughs> and that really got me through. Because I was looking forward to that time, right? Just anticipating getting away and just doing something that I enjoyed. And so that's the picture, I think, of, of what God is saying here, what Peter is saying. Look forward to the day of God's returning. It's literally setting our, our thinking on what it will be like when Jesus returns. Picture what that's going to be like. Anticipate that. And that changes how you function now. This old world with all its sin and sickness and evil will be gone. And God will replace it with a new heaven and a new earth where he will reign in his holiness. Revelation gives us a bit of a picture. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be, there, be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now, the anticipation of this event gives hope and encouragement to the follower of Jesus, and it impacts how we live even today. Focus on the second coming of Christ gives the believer the ability to, to persevere until he returns whatever you're in, you know, whatever situation you might find yourself in. Jesus is coming, and so we can persevere through that because of the hope that that brings. It helps us persevere, and it empowers us to live boldly for him. I just want to invite the, the worship team to come on up at this point in time. And as they're coming, I'm going to ask us this question that we asked at the beginning of the, of the, of the morning here. So how do we then live in this season? Excuse me, how do we live in this time of uncertainty and instability? So if we think about what Peter told the church there in his letter, I'm just going to summarize those. This is how we can live in this season. We remember that Christ said, or that God said rather, that Christ will return, and we remember that God always keeps his promises. We acknowledge that we're living in the last days and we're prepared for the challenges that will come to our faith. We recognize God has the authority and the power to judge the world with righteousness and justice. We patiently wait for his return and respond with tenderness towards those who don't know him. We anticipate his coming when he will claim those who love him and judge those who have refused to recognize him. We strive to live lives that are worthy of him. We join him in his work of redeeming those who don't know him. Excuse me. 
So if you're here this morning and you've never, ever had a chance to consider God's love for you, if you've never, ever asked him to to be a part of your life, to come in and be Lord of life, to guide you and, and direct you and give you real life, this is a great time to do that. The truth is that Jesus is coming again, that God keeps his promises, that the believers will be gathered to the Lord and that non-believers will be judged. And so, you know, this is a great time to have that conversation with somebody if, if you're here today and you've never made that decision. God is coming. Don't say, hey, I'm going to put it off because <laughs> it's going to come like a thief. We won't know the exact day or time. Only the Father knows. But this is that opportunity for you to, to have that life-changing conversation and eternity-changing conversation. So we'll invite you to do that this morning. We'll have some staff up at the front. Uh, Chet and Grace and Brian, I think, will be up here. There's Brian. And if you've got anything that you want to chat about, perhaps from the, the message this morning, feel free to go up and chat with him. Or if you'd like anything uh, to be prayed for, they'll be here and available. Uh, so you can come up during the song. And as well, if there's any, anyone here this morning that you know, maybe there's, they're carrying a big burden, there's friends that you're with, you can take this opportunity to pray for them even now. Lord, I want to thank you for your goodness, for your love, for your plan, that it's perfect, that you will return, and that you will gather us to be with you, and that, that you'll judge the world. We give you praise that you know that, and we give you praise for your authority and the right that you have to do this work. And we give you praise as well that you are tender and that you are timeless and that you give us opportunity. And that opportunity, even this morning, may be now. We pray that you would do your work in the lives of, of those who need to make this decision and that you would work in our lives as we leave this place today. Help us to, to be a part of the redeeming um, nature of this time and to reflect your character to reflect who you are um, in the conversations that we have with different people where we work and where we live. And so we give you praise and we give you thanks that we can trust you and that we can know you and that all of these things, the events of our world and, and the future of our world, that these are in your hands and that we can trust you in that. We ask all of this and now in that powerful name of Jesus in whom we place our trust. Amen. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you and thanks for listening.